Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from, and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. Radically changing subjects now to the book of Ecclesiastes, (laughs) which is our sermon series for the month of July. Ecclesiastes is one of the hardest books in Scripture. It's one of the most difficult to read and most difficult to understand. It's also one of the most challenging books to read. I would rank it up there with Revelation and Job and Ecclesiastes. Those are kind of the three hardest books of the Bible to understand and to read. So we're going to tackle this together in a month. And it's part of a genre that we call wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is the books in the Old Testament of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And the point of each of these books is to push us and push our faith to think about it differently and deeper. Purpose of wisdom literature is to challenge our faith, to poke and to prod us, to get us to think, is this really what you believe? Are these the implications? And to sort of kind of wreck easy answers that we have about things. It's designed to do that. It's designed to get us to think deeper. And we, as a faith, we don't give simple answers because we as people don't ask simple questions. That because we as humans ask complex answers, they demand complex, or we we ask complex questions, so they demand complex answers. And so Ecclesiastes really unpacks all the complexity and answers things in a complex way as we look at this book here. There's two voices here in the book of Ecclesiastes. You have one who I'm gonna call the author. He's the one who composed the book. He's the one who has sort of an introduction in the first 11 verses. He gets the first say, and he gets the final say at the end of the book. And then in the middle of it, most of the book of Ecclesiastes is who I'm gonna call the critic or the teacher. And he's the one who gets a big platform to say whatever he wants to say. And this is who I picture the critic to look like. Um, That's Anton Ego from Ratatouille. Uh, He looks very dour, very negative, just like very upset, you know, just like a classic French person, just like upset and looking down on life, and life is terrible, life is the worst. Most French philosophers are very much like him. And it's very much looking at the world, and he sees the world, and it has a very negative outlook on life in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the voice of the teacher, the voice of this critic, he's the one that says the answers that we have to the faith he thinks are insufficient. And he challenges a lot of the theology of the Old Testament. He challenges a lot of the worldview of the Old Testament. And one of the things that I like to talk about is worldview which is what is the lens in which we understand the human life and the human condition? What is the lens that we look through? That's called a worldview. And there's this great book, if you want to write it down, it's an incredible book called Universe Next Door. And basically what it looks at is here's the Christian worldview and here are all the other worldviews of the world and here's how they compare and contrast to one another. And in that book he says that there are seven questions that every single worldview answers And they're going to be up on the screen. The first is, what is the prime reality? What is really real? In the faith, we say it's uh, Yahweh. It's God, the triune God. Some faiths may say um, uh, Allah or Buddha or the, not Buddha, 
prime reality, what is really real? If you don't believe in God, you say that the natural world is all that is really real. The second is, what is the nature of the external reality? Is that chair divine, or is that chair just something that was created by God? What's the nature of the world around us? Three, what is a human being? Who are we? What is our significance in the world? Fourth, what happens to us after we die? Is there anything after we die? What is the nature of the afterlife? Five, is how is it possible to know anything? Six, how do we know what is right and wrong? How do we determine our morality? And then seven, what is the meaning of human history? Is there an ultimate goal behind all that we do, or is all that we do meaningless? And the book of Ecclesiastes, I think he really hammers at a lot of these, but he really nails down and challenges three of those questions. The critic does. What is the prime reality? What's really real? The author of Ecclesiastes really questions the character of God and the nature of God. The second is, what happens to a person after death? The writer of Ecclesiastes thinks that there is no thing after death and how that shapes the rest of his worldview. And then the third is, what is the ultimate meaning of human history? The writer of Ecclesiastes thinks that there is no meaning, and even if there is one, God has made it hidden from us. And we can see how those answers to those questions shapes his profoundly negative view about life under the sun. And so we're going to be asking ourselves, why is this book in the Bible then? Why is this book in the Bible, if it seems to challenge a lot of the theology of the rest of the book, why in the wisdom of the Lord did he place it in the Holy Scripture? Why is it here? And here's a few things I think why Ecclesiastes is in this book and why it's useful for us. The first is that the author lets the teacher speak. The author lets the critic speak. The critic is not silenced. In other words, God is big enough to handle your skepticism and doubts. But the Lord is not afraid of people challenging him. The Lord is not afraid of these questions. The Lord is not afraid of these doubts. Because if God is a source of all truth, that if everything that is true froms from the divine reality, then he can handle questions. Because we know that the truth will stand up. So God can handle skepticism. God can handle doubt. God can handle questioning. God can handle the hard questions. I think that's one of the reasons why this is in the book, is that we don't have to feel like we have to bottle that up. That it's okay to express those things. It's okay to bring that up in the community of faith. We don't have to bottle those things up. And he also gives voice to a view of God who's frankly mistaken. We see throughout the Ecclesiastes that the critic, the person that the author gives voice to, he'll correct him in the end of the book, and we see that he's mistaken about who God is. And because he's mistaken about who the character of God is, that then shapes everything else that he sees about the world. And how we in ourselves, if we are mistaken about the nature and reality and character of God, if we believe lies about the Lord, that profoundly shapes how we understand the world around us. That profoundly shapes our worldview. And so Ecclesiastes is designed to poke and prod and challenge us and say, hey, what is your worldview really like? 
Is your worldview more like this critic? Is your worldview more like this God who is far and distant even if there is a God? Is that more what your worldview is like? Or is it more like the faith of the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the scriptures? Is it more in line with that? Is your believed worldview in line with your lived-in, everyday reality? I was reading this one commentator who talked about uh, why is Ecclesiastes in here? He said, the, the goal of Ecclesiastes is not to make us lose hope. The goal of Ecclesiastes is to humble us, to reset our priorities, to say, what is it that truly matters under the sun? And so we're going to be looking at, the, I'm going to be reading the two frames. So we said there's two people. There's the author and the critic. And we're going to be looking at the words of the author it's going to be Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the NLT. I think uh, the NLT does a good job kind of translating and emphasizing the, the two voices here in Ecclesiastes. It says this, starting in verse 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. And basically, in these next uh, few, chap- few verses, he's going to summarize what the critic believes. So this is the author summarizing the critic. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north, and around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and it flows back out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new. But actually it's old and nothing is new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in generations, no one will remember what we are doing. It's a very bleak outlook on life, isn't it? Not your usual kind of cheery scripture that you would usually read. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. And the author here is framing up that this is the theology of the critic meaningless. Everything is completely meaningless. The root of that Hebrew word is hevel. It says hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. And the the literal translation of that Hebrew word is not meaninglessness, it's smoke. It literally means smoke. So just imagine yourself sitting around a campfire and you see smoke coming up from the campfire. You can see the smoke And you know it's there, you know that there's actually smoke there, but the moment I try to grab hold of smoke, what happens? Can you hold on to it? Can you grasp a hold of smoke? No. 
And that's what he says, when I try to find out what the meaning of life is, when I try to wrap my mind around it, when I try to figure out all that's going on under the sun, I grab a hold of it, and the moment I think I got it, it just disappears like vapor, like smoke. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. That life, according to the teacher, it's like trying to grasp onto the smoke. It can't be done. That true meaning and purpose in life can't be grabbed and nailed down, according to the teacher. It's profoundly negative outlook on life. And then ending it, here's how the author frames at the end of it. After he gives the skeptic his platform, he says this in 12 verses 8 through 14. Again, he's summarizing the teacher in the beginning. Everything is meaningless. Everything is hevel, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. Keep this in mind. The teacher, keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise. And he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful. For writing many books is endless, and much study wears you out. That's the whole story. Here's the final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. You can see he kind of critiques it. He says, the teacher was considered wise by many. Sort of in, in the implication behind it is that he was considered wise, but I would not consider him as wise as he thinks he ought to be. And says his words are like a cattle prod, that they're designed to poke and make us think, what is it, do I really believe this? It's designed to poke us and make us feel uncomfortable. And I don't want us to shy away from that in the series on Ecclesiastes, that it's going to poke and us and it's going to make us feel uncomfortable. But the core problem of the teacher, the core problem of the critic that the author really gets at here is at the end in verse 14. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. The core problem that we'll see for the skeptic, for the critic of Ecclesiastes, is that death makes life meaningless. He looks at the problem of death and he says that there's nothing possibility after that. And that profoundly shapes his worldview. And we see here at the end in verse 14 where he says, God will judge everything. In other words, the author says that there is something that happens after death, that there is a reality beyond this world. But in the middle of the critic of Ecclesiastes, he sees death as the ultimate reason why everything is meaningless. And as we'll read Ecclesiastes, we'll see that there is specifically a Jesus Christ-shaped hole right in the middle of the book. There's not just simply a God-shaped hole because the writer of Ecclesiastes believes in God. It's a Jesus Christ-shaped hole. A Jesus Christ-shaped hole because it's a God who comes and submits himself to our life. To the teacher, death renders everything under the sun vapor or smoke. So what happens when God himself comes down to our level and submits himself to death? 
How does that change everything? Reading a bit from the critic in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 through 10. This is the words of the critic. The living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, it's all long gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. So go ahead, eat your food with joy, drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is your reward for all your earthly toil. Whatever you do, do well, for when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. Hevel, hevel, hevel. The problem of death for the critic of Ecclesiastes is that it makes everything hevel. And if we truly have a theology where God is not real, or that God is distant, the critic has a point. If we truly don't believe that God has made himself one of us, the critic has a point. Because he views everything meaningless as as death comes and renders it all meaningless. Portrays God as far and distant throughout the book. What's interesting is that nowhere in the book does the critic use the covenantal, familial term of God. He doesn't say the word Yahweh, which is when God revealed himself to his chosen people, he said, call me Yahweh. He always calls God Elohim, just the generic name for God. It's almost like God is far distant from him. I'm not even going to refer to him with the covenant name Yahweh. It's this far off distant Elohim. And this is the reality of what many people believe in our society. It's interesting, this book written probably over 3,000 years ago is speaking very prophetically into what many people believe in our day and age. That if there is no God, everything is meaningless. That if God is really far away, everything is meaningless. That's what almost all the philosophies of our day are rooted in. They start off with this idea that God is not really here, and if he is here, he's far and distant. Existentialism, this belief that God is not present, and so everything in life is meaningless, so I'm going to choose to make meaning out of it anyways. Nihilism, the belief that God is not real, so nothing in this life matters, and I will choose to despair. These worldviews, hedonism, This idea that everything in life is meaningless, so I'm just going to get all the pleasure out of life that I can because ultimately it's meaningless. Hevel, hevel, hevel. We live in a society that not only embraces the hevel but celebrates it. And is trying to figure out what do we do if life is like a vapor, if life is like smoke. And so then we look at the Jesus Christ-shaped hole we see the hope of the gospel message in the middle of all this. In Philippians 2, it says this. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Though he, being Jesus, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being, When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. 
that Jesus, being in very nature God, humbled himself to the hevel of this world, to the vapor, and he renders the greatest enemy that the critic of Ecclesiastes looks at and sees as death. Jesus Christ humbles himself to death and defeats death and renders it powerless. Scripture says the sting of death has been taken away by Jesus Christ. And if that is our lived in reality, how does that change how we view the world around us? How does that change how we view the world around us if we truly believe, friends, that we serve a Jesus who came down to be one of us and submitted himself to death? How does that change everything? Because God says this life is worth saving. This life is worth giving meaning to. That what you do on this earth is not hevel. What you do on this earth is worthwhile because Jesus submits himself to a life like yours. And Jesus takes on human flesh and he redeems labor, he redeems love, he redeems relationship, he redeems all these things that the author of Ecclesi- or the critic of Ecclesiastes says is meaningless, is purposelessness because of the reality of death. And if Jesus has conquered death, that if we are living into admitting ourselves to a Jesus who has come to give us so much more, so much fuller life than we could ever make for ourselves. The author of Ecclesiastes hints at this, this life beyond death, at the end, that Jesus, that God will judge everything. In other words, this is not the end, that God gets the final say. It's the God who makes things right. And the hope of Jesus, friends, the hope of Jesus, the hope of the gospel, so that all will be made right, that this life is worth saving And that Jesus came to redeem us for life, save us from death into life. The life here and now and the life to come. He humbled himself to our level, became one of us, cried, laughed. Not the case at all. What is really your worldview? What is really the lens in which you interpret and live your life through? And the author of Ecclesiastes is going to poke and prod us with a cattle prod to challenge us. And secondly, what are your priorities? What are your priorities? Are you making the priorities of Jesus the reality of your life? Or are you prioritizing things that are hevel? Are you prioritizing things that are meaningless? Or are you living into the reality of an incarnate Jesus who has come to redeem and restore all the significant things in your life to redeem your work, redeem your relationships, redeem all that brokenness? Are you living into that reality? So I'm going to invite the band and our communion stewards up. As we come to the table, as we come to the table and realize that Jesus is with us at the communion table, Now, on the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he was eating dinner with his friends because eating dinner with his friends was meaningful and relationships to Jesus were meaningful. He looked his friends in the eyes and he took bread and he said, this is my body. Whenever you eat this, do this in remembrance of me for the forgiveness of sins. And then after the supper was over, he took the cup 
And he looked his friends in the eyes and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Pour out not just for you, but for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And so Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by your blood. Lord, make us one with Christ one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until you come in final victory and we feast forever at your heavenly banquet. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.